Well, I'm Mike Green here with Mason Porter, who's a university lecturer at the Oxford Center for Industrial and Applied Mathematics at the University of Oxford. Uh, and Mason, we're, we're talking about work you and colleagues did with network theory and House of Representatives, and, and was it the Senate as well? Um, we've done some stuff with the Senate as well. First, we worked with um, committee structure, com how people are connected based on common committees, and that makes more sense for the House because it has a larger structure committees. But then we've also discussed some voting problems that we've done with both Senate and House of Representatives. And then what you did, is you used graph theory. You had like the points or nodes were right. congressmen or, or congresswomen, and then other set of nodes or, or points would be the committees there are. Right. So you start with a bipartite network. So you have legislators and you have committees and subcommittees. We treated committees and subcommittees as the same. So a person's connected to committees and subcommittees on which they're assigned, and you take one term of Congress at a time, so a two-year period. And then one can look at um, a projection in one of two ways. So for example, two committees would be connected with some strength based on how many congressmen they share, relative to how many they would share if you assign people at random. And, and what, what kind of things did you find out? Uh, so the thing we were looking at is known as community structure. Um, so it's, it's a graph partitioning problem, except you don't know the sizes of the communities beforehand. And so what this will tell you is um, you know, which committees are more strongly connected to which other groups of committees. So for example, a committee and its subcommittees, like, like in intelligence and its subcommittees, will be very strongly connected. And you expect that, but then you also find some strong connections between different committees, so between, say, Rules Committee and the Select Committee on Homeland Security. Uh, and there's a whole story behind that that was um, not reported in the, in the popular press, but what you basically find is that the Rules Committee put their leadership on there and instead of putting committees, people from appropriate jurisdictions, which is what they technically are supposed to do. And that's something that, like, for example, someone that had looked for that particular fact, they might have found it, but, but you found it by, by looking at, a, at you know, the whole uh, structure and, and found that very close right. correlation, which it wasn't legislated, for example, it just happened. Right. So um, if one had looked beforehand, just, you know, zooming in on a particular point, one could have found it. What we did is we did our analysis mathematically, and this just stood out. And then what we then my collaborators and I looked through the essentially public documents and some documents posted on Congress's website to find out what had happened and to find out, okay, the, did what we find actually correspond to real life or was it an artifact of an algorithm? We tried several different algorithms to partition the graph, found the same structure every single time, which if you don't have a theorem, which unfortunately this part of the theory doesn't have those available yet, so that's a nice open problem for those of you out there, um, you know, you want to look at different algorithms to make sure it's not an artifact of the algorithm. This work got some press, and when one of the newspaper columnists actually talked to the uh, PR person from the Select Committee on Homeland Security, they essentially unwittingly admitted that they had done this, even though it was against the official rules of Congress. So it really, you know, they, they were really being a little bit insidious there. And you were kind of like detectives that found this with mathematics. Yeah, but we weren't looking for it. It was right. just one of those things, why is this there, and let's make sure this is a real phenomenon. Exactly. I mean, one of, the, one of the things this actually can lead into with, with social science in general, at least when it comes to networks, you know, the math, mathematicians and computer scientists and physicists, and it's really been a team of several people from those, from those um, disciplines that have been involved in these sorts of studies, you know, find something that may or may not be there. Then we go to the political scientists or social scientists and say, okay, here are some places to look closely. Which ones of these things are real? The same way that theorists and experimentalists in physics have interacted for a long time. So it's not that we necessarily find the answers, but we might give places where the experts who know the data really well can zoom in more closely and see what's really there. 
so you mentioned this involved graph theory. Were there, were there other aspects of mathematics that were involved? Um, well, we did some data mining. So originally what we looked at, in addition to the network, in, in addition to the network connections, was how people were voting. So we actually took voting data from the U.S. Congress, and this has actually been tabulated and it's publicly available for the entire history of the U.S. Congress. So there's really a lot of data to play with. Um, and one can look at how people are actually voting, which congressmen are voting similarly on bills, and use either a singular value decomposition or something even more complicated if one wants to, and to find out who's basically voting um, on one side of the equation, who's voting on the left side, uh, or on the other side, and you can, you know, you, you determine a right-left. The, the SVD is actually up to a sign, so you can look at what somebody like Jesse Helms is doing, and that will tell you which one's Republican and which one's, which one's Democrat. And you can group people by similarity, and then you take a committee and say, okay, well, the committee's conservativeness or liberalness is based on the average of its constituents. So you can assign a partisanship value to each committee, and you can start correlating the partisanship of a committee with its role in the network. So SVD, data mining, computational linear algebra in general, various things from that, uh, statistics. Mm -hmm. So that singular value decomposition, like you, had, like you said, it's a lot of data. That you're, or right. Even if for one Congress, it's a lot of data. Right. And that helps boil it down uh, so that you can, you can see what's going right. on. Right. So, so one way that would work, so suppose I have a voting matrix. I have, say, a Senate, 100 senators, and they voted, say, on 1,000 different bills. So I have a 100 by 1,000 matrix. And if, if Senator I voted yay on, on Bill J, that would give me a plus one in the IJ entry. If you voted nay, that would give me minus one. And if the senator were absent or abstained, that would give me a zero. And so I have this voting matrix. I would take an SVD of that, and I can imagine writing the SVD down in coordinates. And so there are a certain number of singular values, but I can truncate that matrix. And what you find is actually the first two singular values are much larger than the others. You can, you can reorder these if you want to. You can, you know, there's a theorem that says you can reorder these. And you can keep the top ones and then you know, pretend the others are all zero. And you can reconstruct the original voting matrix, and you can compare the new approximate matrix to the original matrix. And if you only keep those two values, you find that 93% of the individual votes are still correct. If you then reconstruct the outcomes, in one example, in the 107th Senate, so 107th means 2001 and 2002, sorry, 107th House, you find that 984 out of 990 outcomes are reconstructed correctly just by keeping the top two singular values. So there's a lot of stuff you can do there. One thing that we didn't do that would be interesting to pursue is what are those six bills? Those, I would expect, would be very controversial bills. We didn't actually go and do that. So it's amazing that all that would just boil down to those two components, even though it's a huge right. thing to start with. Right. So two com and it's consistent that two components, or during the Civil War time, you actually need a third component that corresponds to sort of a north-south um, division. Mm -hmm. But in general, it's a very small number of components for this particular data set that gives you the voting information. And then you can combine that with the networks, or you can look at the voting data as a network, which is a whole different route. That's, that's something that we've done. Um, in a, a little more recently, in the last year or so, so those papers have just appeared. Yeah. More generally, on your website, I, I read that you'd like to use mathematics and applied mathematics to uh, explain observed behavior and predict novel behavior. Right. Yeah. So the explained observed behavior is a little bit easier. <laughs> um, I would say that this goes under the explained observed behavior. It's more of a retrodiction, mm -hmm. right? Because we're taking votes that already occurred, and th and that's not predicting how they're going to vote, you know, tomorrow. Um, one thing that we've done more recently with voting data is that you can use a concept known as modularity. What modularity means is you partition your network and you, you try to count connections inside a group minus connections between groups. Mm -hmm. So you can actually look up the definition for the, for the rigorous version of it. But you can imagine finding the algorithm that maximizes this quantity. And you can compute this quantity from, an, from the partition based on party only. So the party 
modularity will be, um, if, you, if you have a more polarized situation, the party modularity will be very close to the maximum wave. The party realignments occur when um, the maximum modularity is much larger than the par party modularity. And so the history for the entire US is now available. And so you can actually see, by computing these quantities, when the realignments in the US have occurred. And there's normally a bit of a trend. And so there, you might have something that's predictive. Of course, we'd have to wait you know, 10 years to see if those predictions hold. And actually, right now, if you actually look, the party, um, the um, polarization in the US Congress, at least based on this measure, is about the largest it's ever been. So we can't, we're not ready to make that prediction yet. But if we ever start doing that, we might be able to predict when a realignment will occur. But normally, this has been retrodictive. And I also noticed on your website, it said you're, uh, I don't know, I know you've done a lot of work in sports, and I don't know if you're a big sports fan, but it did say you were a big Dodgers fan. I am a baseball, I am, I am a baseball fan, even though I've done work on college football. So you can do work on ranking systems in college football. The reason it's an interesting mathematical problem, you have about 120 teams and they each only play 10 games. So the question is how are you going to rank 120 teams when they only play 10 games? And so the natural ranking, of course, is, well, but my team beat your team, so you have head-to-head matchups. Mm -hmm. So you have a series of head-to-head matchups that you encode as a graph. And so you know who played, your, who did your team play, who did their team play, was their schedule stronger or not? Um, so that, you know, there's, so there's a whole project that I did based on, you know, based on that. One thing that my collaborators and I and our students, um, I should mention that the dirty work on most of these problems was done by our students, uh -huh. by undergraduates. Uh -huh. So there, you know, I was there to help guide the problem and give ideas, but the students are the ones who really did the work, and I, I don't want to understress that. I mean, the students are, were really the, the core of just about all of these projects. One thing we're doing with baseball pitchers, right, you can imagine baseball pitchers face each other, each other head to head the same way that football teams do. And so, you know, you might want to say, well, is Pedro Martinez better than Sandy Koufax? I would say yes. And the Dodgers unfortunately traded him for Delano de Shields. That was a disaster. Um, yeah, a long time ago. I, you know, that was the worst trade we ever made. I still remember. I'm still bitter about that. But, you know, Koufax and, and Pedro Martinez never played each other. But there are intermediate players, which you can imagine traversing on the graph if they did play each other. So you might try to get a, a ranking of pitchers for Hall of Fame or within an individual season get a ranking for the Cy Young based not on statistics, but, you know, because statistics over different eras have a lot of different factors there. And so while they're useful, this gives a different way to look at the problem. Uh, we have no results on this yet, but at least, you know, that's something that's, I've been looking at a way to do network theory in baseball for years since that's my, my sport. Now, that's the plan. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else you'd like to add about network theory um, or what you did in uh, Congress or, or even uh, baseball or football? Well, the baseball stuff, we don't, um, well, we have no results yet. Um, the thing we're doing right now for Congress, we're actually now working closely with political scientists. The original work did not have any political scientists. One of the things we wanted to do was to get them interested in this set of methods because they normally use other sets of methods. They're actually very sophisticated mathematics. They use a lot of game theory and a lot of statistics, but they don't actually use that many networks. And I think that's a natural, a natural tool that can and should be used by that literature. Uh, some of them are actually listening to us, which is amazing. And so one of them, from UC San Diego, we're doing this in San Diego, so he's actually a local guy who I'm, who I'm working with. And so what he, the expertise that he brings to the table is a knowledge of the data that I'm never going to really have realistically. One of the forefronts is mathematicians working more closely with social scientists, the, the way we do with physicists and now biologists. You know, it's, just, it's, it's something that I'd like to see more of, and I think that, that network theory is at least one of the avenues in which we can see more of that. All right, well, that's Mason Porter, who's a university lecturer at the Oxford Center for Industrial and Applied Mathematics at the University of Oxford. Mason, thank you very much. I'm Mike Breen for the Mathematical Moments. Yeah, thank you very much.